This is Pastor Matt at North Plinko Baptist Church. We want to thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Not Another Revelation Podcast. We hope you guys enjoy. Last week, we looked at Revelation chapter 4, which is the throne room scene. John uh, tells us that he is in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. A voice behind him in 110 says, Come up here and write down the things that you see. We get the seven letters to the seven churches. Uh, we see the throne room, and last week we kind of went dug deep into what it, he's seeing there, and then we immediately step off into chapter 5 with the title deed to earth. John starts out and says, And then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written without, within, and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now, uh, in our world today, we don't we don't have scrolls, so this is an unusual thing, and it's hard for us to put a, a wrap our brains around. I think the nearest equivalent that we've got today is either a file folder yeah. that's got labels on it, or if you've ever been in a law office, they've always got those uh, red and dark brown books that are lined. Uh, I've often joked and thought. Okay, so is there a particular bookstore or bookseller <laughs> that makes those books? Because you see them in almost every law office. You never see anybody move them. They don't have creases in them. Yeah. It's just, it's, I have actually, because uh, this is the guy that I am, uh, been in a law office uh, closing on a house and went and opened some books because I, I had convinced myself that they were fake. That surprises me none. So, and the lawyer's like, hey, hey what are you doing? What you doing there, big boy? <laughs> Well, I'm having me a look-see at these books. So on the the spine of those books, it will be dates because those are listings of, of legal proceedings and precedents. This is exactly what you have with the scroll in that uh, it is a— uh, in the Roman world, well, let me just read from a commentator that says, uh, this kind of contract was known all over the Middle East in ancient times and was used by Romans from the time of Nero on. The full contract would be written on the inner pages and sealed with seven seals, and then the content of the contract would be described briefly on the outside. So you have uh, the Greek word that, that John uses here is biblion, same, same, it just means book. It's where we get the word Bible. Um, and so you have this, this scroll, and on the outside of it is a brief description of what's going on on the inside, and then you have seals uh, from signet rings from the different uh, judges, lawyers, people that, that verify that this is legit. And so that's what the seven seals on the outside of the scroll are, and uh, the reason why it would be that way is because in a, a Roman equivalent of a courthouse, you would have a, a pile of these, and so you wouldn't want to have to open every one of them to see what they said. So there, these seals are on the outside, and then, then this description of uh, here's, here's what it is. And so uh, all of a sudden, in the throne room, this, this legal document is brought out, um, and uh, it's, it, we will see at, from context that what this legal document is, is the title deed to earth. Um, in uh, Revelation record, Henry Morris wrote, but what this what is this remarkable scroll? It is nothing less than the title deed to earth itself. It is clearly the antitype of all the rich topographical teaching associated with the divinely specified procedures for land redemption in the Old Testament. So you can 
we, we see that in the Old Testament. We see uh, when Abram buys a piece of property that, that the ownership for that is, is recorded and made, you know, there are multiple witnesses that, that say who owns what and that it was all done legally without any kind of uh, hanky-panky going on. <laughs> That's what you got here. Um, so the scroll is brought out. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. What, what's going on here? Why is John crying? Well, because, I mean, every well, if you look back at chapter 4, I mean, it's very celebratory, and then all of a sudden it's like this is a pretty important thing. This is kind of a big deal, as in the title leads to the earth, and uh, and then it, as it's recorded that there's no one there, not the elders, not the uh, any of the, the cherubim, nobody there. And he's seen some pretty incredible things um, so far, but none of these things are able to uh, open the scroll. And something that I think is kind of interesting is like this whole, as you get into when you see the lamb who comes on the scene here in a second, is that whole process of... Um, kind of taking back such pieces of land, like in Jewish in, in the Jewish culture and stuff. Like you think, like I look at, um, uh, you see this played out really well in like, in, um, in Ruth's story, like that her all, all of the all of the family of, of Naomi and Ophelia, all of it, like that that side of the family, the the sons and the, and the and the and the father, they pass away, and it's just the women is like, well, someone's got to take that over. Like someone takes over that land, and takes somebody, somebody takes over that um, that wealth per se. And, you know, it's kind of one, if I looked at, when I was studying for this, to put it in much more uh, of terms that I could explain, like the culture that they had, like it had to be, if, so, if someone was going to be able to take that land or take that property or take that back from somebody, it had to be a family member, like it had to be somebody who was related, somebody who was willing to be able to do it, and someone who was financially able to do it, like who had the means to do that thing. And so I think when I look at that, and then we see the lamb who comes on the scene here in a second, like that really... Um, it really just flips the switch for me. Like it just, I always love to see those kind of things where I can see the thread line of Jesus throughout everything. And so to see that storyline played out in like Ruth where Boaz comes in and he's distantly related and he's, uh, he, he's willing to do it. He's willing to serve Ruth and take, and take Naomi and their, uh, and, and all of them into, uh, into their family. And he's, and he does that. And then we, and then we see Boaz and Ruth and all that played even into the lineage of Jesus, which I think that's just a really cool, um, outline of kind of how something how one of those land deeds can kind of be taken back like how the process of that went in jewish culture but then also how that plays out here in revelation which is just again to me seems like a really really cool thing how that's played out all throughout scripture absolutely and we know throughout human history uh there have been lots of people who thought that they were qualified to open the scroll yeah john MacArthur writes it this way and i really like the way that he put it uh, in his commentary, Revelation 1 through 11. Throughout history, there have been many pretenders to earth's throne who have sought to conquer and rule the earth. The first and most powerful and notorious usurper was Satan. After the rebellion against God was crushed, he and his angelic followers were thrown out of heaven. We see that in Luke 10, Revelation 12, 3 through 4. And he became God of this world, according to 2 Corinthians 4, 4. He inspired a host of humans to try their hand at conquest, men such as Nebuchadnezzar, Darius, Alexander the Great, the emperors of Rome, Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan, Napoleon, Lenin, Stalin, Hitler, and the list goes on and on of people who have thought that they were powerful enough, strong enough, mighty enough to 
lay claim to I'm the ruler of the earth. Yeah. In fact, we will see as we move forward, there's going to be, even after this throne room scene, there's going to be a pretender who is trying to take control of the earth. Um, but no one above, below, underneath, in, in the in the closet, in the in the nightstand, <laughs> nobody could open the scroll. And this upsets John. Um, he he starts weeping. And I will say that as I as you we look at people, it's easy for us to look at why uh, Hitler failed, Napoleon failed. But if we look at our best attempts, and and uh, in the Bible we see David, who um, you know, if you look at him on paper, this guy is perfectly qualified. Yeah, I mean, he 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 he's not somebody that's born in a pretentious situation. He's somebody who you know he, he grows up. Uh, he literally fought lions and tigers and bears. Oh, oh my! my yeah. and, and won as a preteen and teenager. I, I mean. This guy is courageous. He, uh, I, you are not a man if you don't read the story of David and Goliath. And and David walking out is when Goliath comes out. He's mocking the children of God. And David goes, "Who, who does this guy think he is to mock God's people?" To the point that his brothers say, "Dude, you need to shut up." <laughs> <laughs> he then walks out on that field and and says, "Today, I'm going to kill you." Here, here he is, a little kid. I mean, he's. 12, 13 years old. He's a knobby-kneed, snot-nosed punk, but he has the guts to walk out and face this, what, eight-foot-six dude? And uh, Goliath mocks him. David, we, you know, we all know the story. Picks up some rocks, flings them. Uh, the rock, it, the text says it sinks into his forehead, so it's pretty good throw. Some serious, that's some serious picturesque there. Yes, yes. The writer of uh, First Samuel wanted to make sure we got the image. Sink into his forehead. And so David goes, gets the sword, cuts his head off. Uh, as Carmen so beautifully said just uh, 30 years ago, uh, David showed the nation of Israel how to get ahead. Um, Oh, God, I can't. <laughs> Look, dude, if you can Carmen. bring up Bible Man, I can bring up Carmen. Carmen. Oh, my goodness, that's tough. <laughs> Satan bites the dust. So <laughs> so David's our, our best option. I mean, this guy's got everything right. And yet, uh, in, in fact, the writer uh, in 1 6 Samuel paints this picture that David has got it all together. He on purpose says, okay, so he does it right uh, for internally in Israel, he does it right externally with with conflict with other nations, and then it's almost like he builds us up and then yanks the carpet out from under us with the story of Bathsheba. David is where he's not supposed to be. He's lounging around at three o'clock in the afternoon on the couch. He walks out. He sees, and it's easy to, for us to forget that Uriah is one of his mighty men, and Uriah's dad is one of his mighty men. So I'm sorry, uh, Bathsheba's. Yeah, husband is one of his mighty men, and Bathsheba's dad is one of his mighty men. He knows this chick. Which is almost, I mean, like, and I guess uh, maybe culturally it's different, but, like, for me, like, it's almost like it's even more sick. Like it's, And I say sick is not maybe not the right word. It's almost it's more disheartening to even know, like, even more of the context of, like, hey, this, like, he knows this person. Like, it wasn't just, not, and not that it makes it any better, but it wasn't by chance, it wasn't by whatever, it wasn't just like, a, it wasn't flippant. Like, he, he knows this person. He knows this girl. And so David goes from being this, this unbelievable, unbelievably well-prepared, well-qualified, perfect picture of, of a king 
really quickly to a weak-minded, weak-willed, lying, conniving, to the point that he sends one of his mighty men back to the front with his own death warrant in his pocket. And that David could trust, A, he's not going to sneak a peek, and B, he's going he's to deliver that message. So David knew that Uriah had all the characteristics that he used to have, used to be known for. And it wasn't until Nathan came that he even contemplated, well, maybe I should take this to God. And so, so it's just a, it's a, it's an ugly scene. And, and I think that the reason, the reason why I bring that up is if, if any king could be put out there and said, well, maybe this guy, maybe he could open the scroll uh, and David fails and fails utterly and completely. He puts his nation at risk. He puts his kingship at risk, all uh, just to, to cover his own trail. But, and, I, and I think I read during all this, like all of those, all those people, like the Moseses, the Solomon, the Abraham, the David, they're here. And if they were, like, if, if it was going to be one of them, they'd walk up and do it. And guess what? They can't. They can't. It's like, so, and again, like you read that, it's like, oh, okay, nobody can get it. But then, like, you roll through and think about, hey, listen to the crowd that's there. Like, you got Peter, the rock on which the New Testament church is built upon. You have John, we've got Paul, we've got these cats that are there in this scene. And it's like, hey, None of y'all can do it. And it's like it even more so, to me, deepens the impact of what we see, the lion and the lamb coming forth here in a moment. So right now, at, at this point in the story, we, we need to understand why the title deed has been lost and who originally had it. So in Genesis chapter uh, 1, it, it doesn't get any more in the beginning than that, um, God created man in his own image and in the, and. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant, seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree. You shall have them for food, and every beast on the earth, and every bird in the air, and everything that creeps on the earth, everything has the breath of of life. And it was so, and God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning on the sixth day. So originally, this title deed is owned by mankind. So that plays into the kinsman redeemer, so this has to be a man, because the title deed is given to man. Now, man loses it when the enemy deceives him in the garden, and uh, that is when Satan takes on the title of lower ca- lowercase g, the god of this world. He is an usurper. He doesn't have the right. He just is making assumptions and doing what he wants to do. That word always gives me usurp. <laughs> it's just not. It's just not when you use it in any other context. And, Satan, he's the usurper. And so we know that that he has that authority because in Luke chapter four, uh, when the devil took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. In a moment of time, he said, to you, I will give this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me. It's been delivered to me. Jesus did not correct Satan. He didn't say, no, it hadn't been given to you. And so today in the world that we live in, um, the, the pretender on the throne is Satan. It's his world. And so, you know, a lot of times people will talk about conspiracy theories and, you know, who's... Uh, because it does seem like there, there's kind of a plan. Yeah, it doesn't have a whole lot of logic. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us. I mean, how, how do how th- in our world today it just feels like everything's falling apart, and it feels like um, 
Ann and I teach a, a young marriage class, and we were talking uh, last night about how it seems like on purpose uh, the culture is telling women that they have to, to be beautiful, you have to reach this ideal that's literally impossible. I mean, if you pick up a glamour magazine, that's not what human beings look like. Right. And we, we know what humans look like. We see them all the time. And yet we have put this image of beauty out there that requires a woman who is naturally beautiful to sit in a chair for three or four hours and, and, and have pain put on her. And then she has these unrealistic scenes put, put that she stands in and pictures are taken. And then somebody airbrushes and, and works on that for hours. And then they put it out in a magazine and say, you know, if you'll buy our products, you can look like this too. And it's physically impossible. That's not how people look, and yet we buy it. We believe that. So that women, I, I asked that group uh, who here struggles with not feeling pretty, not feeling beautiful, and all of them said, oh, I do. I'm, I'm not pretty. I mean, I look at the magazines. I look at, at the Internet. I see things. I, I can't look like that. And I'm like, no, you can't. You, you literally can't. Hey, you got it. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> Good, good job. And so you look at something like that, and that's just one small little thing in a, in a whole whirlwind of stuff where it seems like there's, there's somebody who is trying to make us miserable. And, and even if you think of what we think is the hottest, the prettiest thing, that changes. In my 50 years, that's changed like four or five times. I mean, we've <laughs> gone from, you know, in the 90s, that anorexic um, – grungy looking thing that's supposed to be pretty to now it's it's more curvy thick with three c's yes thick with three c's and so if you're trying to chase that it's equally as impossible and it just it's almost like somebody's dangling this carrot out there that's unattainable and then dragging us down a a path and then as soon as you think that you're like culturally you think hey we're okay we're moving towards it or whatever and it completely flips like it's completely different and so I think that what we see in this these texts that we're looking at is there is someone who has a plan. It it's not the Freemasons. It's not uh, the um, Illuminati. The Illuminati. It's not the Illuminati. It, it, there, there's no particular family. It's not. It's not the Bushes. It's not. It's not. It's definitely not the Kennedys. The the skull and and bones or whatever the club is at Yale. <laughs> you have an enemy, and he has a plan. To make you miserable because, and, and I brushed through this last week, and I want you to kind of think about this. He hates you. He hates you because he hates God ultimately, and humankind are made in the image of God. As you said at the very beginning, like right there in Genesis 1, I mean, it again, goes back to this whole thread line of all throughout human history. This is where it starts, and it just keeps on going until what we see in the next few chapters, Revelations, of where it ends. And so, as Jesus tells parables, one of the things that he keeps drumming back to is our enemy doesn't care what he uses to drag us to hell. If he uses can use legalism and religion and or the appearance of, of uh, being a good person to drag you to hell, like with the older brother in the story of the prodigal son, he'll use that. If he can use booze and pills and party and listening to the Eagles backwards, whatever he wants to. I'm, let's throw back to the 80s again. With <laughs> everybody was afraid of uh, backtracking. Um, okay, that's completely <laughs> side trail I get, but he'll use whatever he can. 
what whatever he he just wants you a miserable as you live and be dead. And that is why Jesus says over and over and over, I came that you might have life and you might have it more abundantly. Okay, so so we see that there's nobody, no human can lay claim to this title deed. Well, and I will, and I will ask this, and I guess I ask you this question, because this is one of the ones that where the students ask often is, okay, you always, you've always, always, always heard the phrase, well, there's no more crying in heaven. But then we see this picture, ask, we see this picture, picture of heaven, this vision that John has, and John's bawling, like John's upset. And like that was something that we had to talk through with them uh, was, well, A, it's a pretty significant reason to be upset. And C, John's, and maybe and maybe I explained it wrong, which is, again, not the first, teach Revelation is not the first time I'm going to do that and definitely <laughs> not the last time I'm going to do it. But I tried to paint the picture, well, John's, John's in heaven, but John's, John's not. This is, this is, these are visions. And so I don't, again, I guess that was what it was for me. It's like, well, John's not, John's there, but physically he's not. Like he hasn't gone through the things that he's he's seeing this. He's not. And maybe that was again. Maybe it was the poor way to explain it. But that's kind of at least the way that I had that, that I tried to do it was. Well, John's not exactly where those people are because they he's not he's not dead. Like he hasn't he hasn't passed away. Like it, these are these are visions, not necessarily him being there. If that makes if that makes any sense, it does. It does. I think the if you just look at the text, it says that that he will wipe away our tears. There has to be tears for them to be wiped away. Um, so it, I, I think that we will achieve perfect understanding, and so that will. I think that that this, that's what's implying that God can that Jesus will wipe away our tears, but that has to be an act. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that is a, that's an interesting way to look at it. And again, and like I said, it may not. It may be that no one ever said there's no crying in heaven, but that's often one of the things that you hear is, and I guess it's because he will wipe away every tear. Everybody just says, "Oh, well, there's no, there's no more crying in heaven." Uh, but again, because, but when John, you, well, he is right, uh, right. And John doesn't have that. And you're right, he because he has not died, he hasn't. Uh, he hasn't been glorified, you know. And that's probably, and that's the theological way to say it. I, the, the, how, how I was explained to a sixth grader was <laughs> yes, <laughs> was okay. John's there, but he's not really there. These are visions. He's not real. He's not really there. And and they're like, oh, okay, that kind of makes sense. If I told a sixth grader how he was glorified, what does that even mean? And how do right. I do that? Well, you could whiteboard out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. Sanctified. <laughs> Justified and glorified. Uh, anyway, yeah, I think, and the easy answer for a sixth grader would be, we haven't gotten to chapter 20, 21, when he wipes <laughs> away the tears yet, so there's crying there now. So uh, John is weeping. And and I want, and it's going to be really important as we go through this scene to remember where John is in his life. Okay, so most theologians think that this is written probably 67 to 70 AD. The very fact that the destruction of Jerusalem is not mentioned leads most people to believe that it happened before 70 AD when Titus destroys the temple in Jerusalem. That's such a monumental thing that surely that would have been brought up. Yeah. Um, and so m- most theologians agree that 67, in that time frame, 67 time period. So John is probably in his 70s. He has... Uh, lived a full life to say the least he's been the pastor in Ephesus he he has undergone he has undergone the the persecution under Nero and tradition tells us that he was boiled alive in a pot of oil he didn't die and so he was condemned to live the rest of his life on Patmos which is a I mean it's still there today it is a uh bleak rock-covered 
place uh, that you th- it's hard to get food. It's hard to do anything. And so here he is li- literally probably living in a cave, scarred. Uh, I mean, bo- being boiled alive in oil is n- probably not a pleasant experience. Well, and I think about, again, him, him being a pastor in Ephesus and him being persecuted himself. Think about all the other believers and brothers and sisters that he's seen murdered for the cause of Christ, including people that he'd done ministry and like he'd seen disciples and heard of his disciples and his friends and his, his, his quote unquote people that have also been murdered. And it's like, man, this, man, he, Jesus said it would be hard, but crap, this is hard, you know, for all practical purposes, we can say with a pretty solid belief that it's true that of the 14 disciples, because remember we had the original 12, um, Judas obviously bowed out. So then you have, so that's 12. Then you've got Matthias that's selected, it's 13. And then Paul, who's the, the Jesus appoints, is 14. So of the 14 apostles, there's one left. It's tough. He's seen all of his friends, all of his compatriots die. And so he's scarred. He's, he's a, a old man who's living in a cave. He, seeing the throne room scene and no one coming forward to him means that I've laid my entire life down for something that failed. Nobody has the right to claim the scroll. So what's the point? So let's, let's pick up with the story or we're going we're gonna to get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> so he begins to cry and uh, some, one of the elders says to him, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out of the world. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. And we'll get into to that, but it gets into the, the heavenly choir. So here he's crying because no one has the right to open the scroll, and then one of the elders says, slow your roll, biggin. Hey, hey, hey. hey. Somebody's cool. got the right. It's cool. And he looks and sees a lamb. Now, if I was going to paint an image of, you know, I wanted a, just a totally metal picture of somebody that could overcome everything, right? He's greater than any king who's ever lived, any warrior who's ever lived. He is greater than any, you know, Viking chieftain, any marauder, marauding uh, Mongol. Who is going to be the baddest of the baddest of the bad? I'm not going to think of a lamb. It's not well, and I, and I think this is always interesting. Again, it goes back to the thread line of Jesus all throughout Scripture is of the tribe of Judah. Okay, those were the warriors. Those were the guys. Those were. For, and again, I read this culturally. Those were called the the they were called lions because of how they were in war, how they were in battle, stuff like that, and how they acted. And they were the leaders. And so, all throughout history, when you hear of the Messiah coming from the line, from the tribe of Judah, when he came to Earth, every again as we talked about all throughout Scripture, when Jesus is preaching and teaching. Okay, so when's your kingdom? Like, is it next week? Like, when we when we start to scheme for all this, as we're talking through right now, like in our teaching series. Uh, it's all right. So when, when, you know, when we've talked to that with, with Luke and the disciples asking the question, so I, I, when, when's this going to go down? And Jesus is like, this is, 
man, you guys just don't get it. And, and well, because everybody's expecting for him to come as the lion, when in reality, before he could come as the lion, he had to come as the lamb. And that's always important, and it's always like a great reminder for me to see how Jesus is both the lion and the lamb, and all wrap up to for him to present himself as the Messiah, as worthy to take the scroll. For everybody who was a first century Jew, there's a, a mental, uh, cultural imagery from lamb that's maybe different than what we have in our, in our culture. If I think of lamb, I think of lamby, <laughs> the, the puppet, or, or I think well, my, I would say all of my girls at one time or the other had a lamb that was one of their, their stuffed animals. And, you know, they loved Lammy and they would put bows in Lammy's hair. And uh, I always think, yeah, think of lamb chop. Yeah. Well, lamb chop, the puppet. Yeah. yeah. So, we okay, so, but for for a Jewish person, especially in the first century, when up until seventy A.D., where there was a sacrificial system in play, a lamb had significance of a sacrifice that's made because a perfect lamb had to be presented on Yom Kippur, which oddly enough, I think is today. Oh, today is Yom Kippur. We're here on the twenty eighth of of uh, September, and I, I'm pretty sure that uh, today is Yom Kippur. Maybe tomorrow. But uh, I'm sure somebody who's listening will check me, and I'll get get an email. I don't have any lambs. So, so, so on Yom Kippur, what would happen is is every family would have to bring a lamb that was without blemish, and that would be a sacrifice that was made for that for that particular family's to sin. And so, when John saw Jesus approaching, with John the Baptist, he's out in the woods preaching, and and baptizing people, he looks up, he sees Jesus coming, and his his proclamation is, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And so there's no doubt that to, to a Jewish reader in the first century, the word lamb would have had, would have triggered the thoughts of a sacrifice. So him being referred to as the lamb, as if slain, it even the text says. Yeah, that wording is just to, to think about what that looks like again you can think about it and, and, and come up with a, a hundred different pictures scenarios but um for me like as, as, and me trying to be a black like I'm, I, I try to think very black and white like and I just think of who Jesus is like we see that and I think of whether it whether it's a lamb that has scars all over it or bloody I don't know what that looks like I also don't know if that just means if that's what he sees if he sees the lamb of God doesn't it be Jesus with holes in his hands nails in his feet piercing in his side stripes on his back whatever that looks like no matter what exactly that that scene looks like it's still absolutely incredible to me well and I think the the wording here is super important because um, any animal that's killed is not standing so it's a lamb as if it was slain but he's standing. He's been victorious. He's overcome. Um, and that is super huge. In Luke chapter 24, easily one of my favorite passages in the Bible, we read, as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He's risen just as he said. And so when we think of a John saying a lamb as if it was slain, the first thing that would come to our mind is if you've ever had a pet or you've seen, for a while we owned a farm in Coleman County, and if you ever saw uh, an, just driving by a, a pasture and saw a cow laid down, there's big problems. There's, there's something wrong. And I, I remember we had a, had a, a dog that, that uh, 
was a, a much-loved pet in our home, and the dog had been sick. Uh, Ruthie was having a uh, birthday party, and so there are like 25 little girls at the house. And I go outside to, to blow up balloons or something, and the little dog was laying uh, in the garage, and it wasn't napping. And I, like, walked up to the dog, and, like, is the dog breathing? And it was just clear from looking at it that, that, that something was wrong. And the dog ended up being dead. And so here I am with all these little girls running around trying to hide a dead dog. Um, That's tough. And, and so, you know, I don't know what made John say that it was if he was slain, but the reason why he, it, this is such a joyful scene is because it's as if he was slain, but he's, but not. he's standing. And so that is just a beautiful, beautiful image. And so we have uh, him standing there and then this description that he has. And here we're going to get, a, we're going to be introduced to, um, Similes, and so I, we got to stop here for a second because this is going to happen a lot in Revelation, where we read uh, the word "like," <laughs> and so it, it's going to be hard for us to to say. So as we're reading about locusts that have a tail of a scorpion, or we read about things, it's as if it was or like it was, and so yeah. Yesterday we we're doing chapter, which I know is jumping to next week, but we're doing chapter six with students, and it talks about all like the uh, the last, the last deal talks about all the cosmetic, I mean, not cosmetic, the cosmic issues and all the like, you know, earth things that are going on. And it's like, well, it's like this and like the, but it could be this and it could be that. It's like, hey, you know what? It could be all of. That. I don't, I don't know. It's just says there's going to be like these things. These could be the remnants of all those things. And so, again, trying to answer all those questions to again sixth through sixth graders through twelfth graders. If you want to come help on Sunday nights, please be my guest. I'll give you my address to my house. You can come answer all the questions. <laughs> so. The description that we have is that he had seven horns. Now, I, uh, Clarence Larkin, who wrote several commentaries on the book of Revelation, has a drawing of this freaky-looking critter that's a lamb-like thing uh, with, like, the tail of a lion and a mane, and it has seven eyes around its body and seven horns. I don't think that's what John's implying. I think that what John is is saying, when as he gets into this description where it has seven horns and seven eyes and uh, a, we need to remember from last week that seven is the number of completeness, and he's going to be bringing imagery in from the culture that, that it's written in and the culture that we can read about in the Bible. And so, okay, think about if uh, Rommel in the German war was called the Desert Fox. Nobody thinks of Rommel as having a bushy tail and, uh, you know, a, a beady eye. Really quick. So we we're able to do that. So try to do that sort of thing here. So when we hear of seven horns throughout the Bible, and, and I've got a list of texts in front of me. I, I'm just going to shotgun them out. 1 Samuel 2.1, 2.10, 2 Samuel 22.3, Psalm 18.2, Psalm 75.10, Psalm 89.17 and 24, Micah 4.13. Th- throughout the Old Testament, horns symbolize power. And so what we have here is, with seven being the number of completeness, what, the, what John is trying to say is this lamb is completely and utterly powerful. Yeah, and we kind of talked about that, we hit on that last week, is that these horns, the eyes, all that thing is that we're seeing that this, uh, that, that this lamb, this, this person who is worthy to come take the scroll is perfect in authority, knowledge, presence, all of those things, that he is complete in every aspect and has power over all aspects of, of, of this earth and this world and eternity. 
So as we talk about the omnipotence, the all-powerfulness, my mind immediately shifts to uh, superheroes in yeah. our, our culture. So uh, every 12-year-old boy on that's grown, since you know 1932, let's say True Detective number one came out, <laughs> uh, has argued with his friends over who's the most powerful superhero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Y'all kind of talked about this last week, and we'll, and I, I, again, he talked about specifically William having a whole argument of which one it was. And I know, I mean, I don't know if I, I haven't heard William's argument for that, but I can 100% know that William has a whole entire scientific argument of which one is which and why which one is, is theoretically the best one that would be possible. So, you know, you got Flash, who's got super speed. You've got Superman, of course, who can leap tall buildings in a single bound. Green Lantern can float and pull anything out of a ring. That's, I guess, pretty cool. But the Ryan, Re Ryan Reynolds didn't do it well. But it's okay. We, we won't talk about it. You've got uh, Batman, who has the superpower of, uh, I guess, uh, money. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> he can buy all the gadgets he, he can, needs. He can aim a ninja star like, no, like nobody else. I, just, I mean. So, um I'm trying to think of other superpowers. You've got um, Frozone. Frozen. Frozen. <laughs> uh, Thor's got a hammer, so he, he can, can throw a hammer. Throw a hammer, and he and nails cannot withstand him. Nope. They're they are they are out of luck. I mean, we can sit here forever. Uh, that that one guy, he talks to fish. He talks to the fish. Aquaman. Aqu he talks to the fish. He can Aquaman. Swim. I'm not real sure why that's a superpower. Which is why every meme on Earth has Aquaman like in a taxi following the other super <laughs> with like a fish bowl sitting in his lap. The movie did better justice. It made it look pretty cool, but you talk to fish, man. I mean, like. It's kind of like, you know, when uh, Sharknado came out and everybody uh, was sc scared to death of sharks. It's like you can thwart sharks by just being on dirt. And so Aquaman's superpower to me seems like it really kind of just unravels. In a way, everybody has a superpower. Yeah, we like just don't go in the water. Like, exactly. <laughs> like don't don't go don't go in the water. Yeah, and if I want my my the fish that I have in my office to go somewhere, I pick their fish tank up and move it across the room. Yeah, I mean, outside of like getting some serious poisoning from some bad tuna or something, you're not really going to have a whole lot of of uh, of run-ins with aquatic life. So we we've created, um, and if you look at the Greek gods, which is really kind of what we've done with the comics, we've we've kind of recreated that stuff. You look at the Greek gods with Zeus and 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 those guys. They're really just superhumans. They're like our superheroes. They 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 have limitations. They have. I mean, Medusa. You know, you can defeat her with a hairbrush and or a mirror. Yeah. Uh, so our minds can't compute the idea of omnipotence. That Jesus doesn't have to leap tall buildings in a single bound. He's literally holding the building together with his thoughts. And again, culturally thinking that has all of those, which again, it, superpowers lowers that, but has but possesses all of those things. And there's no kryptonite or mirror or you know emotional distress for Batman to figure out and have a growly voice about it or what, whatever whatever Batman's thing is. I, who knows? And I was settle down. I mean, I'm a big Batman fan. I know, but <laughs> uh, whatever whatever his weakness is, I don't know if it's. Taxes or what? Yeah, I don't, yes. I don't it, know. It's, it's His weakness is a weak economy. It's the IRS. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but uh, but 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 to, th but to think about again for for me to be able to wrap my my mind around has all of those things, yet there's nothing that, for lack of a better term, brings him down, weakens him. He's got it all. And uh, Colossians one, John one, uh, here in the book of Revelation, we read the statement. All things are created, all things are created by him and for him. And Colossians says, and by him all things consist or hold together. 
And so there is no weakness. That's why John didn't give Jesus five horns or four horns, or he didn't have the, the horn of, of, of strength. He's got all power. That is what John is trying to apply. So here's this lamb. He shows up. He's got all the power, and he's got seven eyes. Now, um, that means, and, and he describes that as the seven spirits of God. And again, don't get wrapped around, you know, it's, it, uh, you, there's a lot of ink been spilled trying to, I think, over-explain this, far greater than we have the ability to understand. Just recognize that it's complete. There's nothing he doesn't see. Or know. I mean, that, like, that's, I think that's just what all it sees. There's nothing he sees. There's nothing he doesn't see, nothing he doesn't know. All-powerful in presence, authority, in wisdom, all of those things. And I think that um, for a lot of our listeners, that, that that idea of him seeing everything, knowing everything, his omniscience is is going to have an impact on you if you just stop to think about it for a little bit. I have had um, in my ministry people who came to me because across their life they have struggled with real injustice that has been done to them in their life. I have had people come to me and say that when they were younger, they were raped or that they were abused as a small child or that they, uh, and, and they've carried the weight of that, the baggage of that their entire life. And they feel like there is no justice. There is no, there, there's no healing this wound because I've been carrying it alone. And what this tells us is, is that God knows, God sees your pain. Don't think, David says, if I, whether I go to the heights of heaven or whether I go to the pits of hell, that God is with me. And that's, I think that's really important. And I think that each one of us in our life, at one point or the other, has been at the heights of heaven. Everything's going my way. Everything's falling into place. Oh, my gosh, I can't believe this has happened. And we've had experiences where real injustice has been done to us, oftentimes by people we thought loved us and cared for us. And the human response to that is almost always, um, I'm alone. Nobody cares. And so I want you to, A, recognize that God sees it. Now, the response to that could be, then why didn't God stop it? And that comes back to that question of pain and the problem of pain. And I want you to recognize that justice will be served, that it, that person who wronged you, that sin, and ultimately that's what, when when you were wronged, whether it was a, a abuse, whether it was somebody stole from you, whether it was somebody that you loved or cared for, lied to you, mis mistreated you, whatever that injustice is, that was ultimately sin. That sin is going to be dealt of one or two ways. Either the person that committed that sin will spend an eternity carrying the weight of the things that they've done wrong throughout eternity in hell, or that sin is poured out on Christ, and he dealt with it on the cross, and he said it is finished, which means it is complete, it is dealt with, it's been handled. As the lamb, the sacrifice was made, and God accepted that sacrifice. And so we, if you're a believer, the thing to do with that issue, whatever it is, is recognize that either that person will deal with it in hell or Jesus dealt with it on the cross. Either way, it's up to God to deal with that injustice, not you. And you can let go of it. You don't have to carry that. 
And I think that that's really important. What you're feeling is normal. It's accept, It's completely normal. Focus on the cross and that that's where sin is dealt with. And I think it's super important to recognize that, that God sees and that God sees everything that's going on. And John, when Jesus is telling his disciples that he's having to go away so that the paraclete, the comforter, can come, he says, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper that will not come, the Holy Spirit, but if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin, because they do not believe in me concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. So the Holy Spirit is here on this earth today, roaming to and fro on the earth. He sees everything that's going on. And so the lamb having those seven eyes means it's complete. He sees. And he is worthy. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seal, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a king and priest to our God, and they shall reign on earth forever. I think that... For John, alone on this island, living in a cave, all of the disciples are dead, this is huge news, because he's got to feel like Christianity's not doing so hot right now. Well, yeah, I mean, like you said, you've seen everybody die, you're by yourself, you're, uh, I mean, you're, you're, you're exiled from everyone and everything you've ever known, and essentially, you're just left there to die. I mean, like, that's, that's the end game here. Now, we know that doesn't happen, but... Um, but that's that's the end game, and, and and John's a smart dude. He knows that, and, and so then when you, but then when God reveals this to him, uh, it's it's got to be to say the least a little bit encouraging. Oh, it's got to be hugely encouraging because, you know, if if the numbers, uh, if we're going to play the numbers game with John, he it's got to feel like this is not going to be is is not possible for them to complete the great commission, the great commission where Jesus said to take the gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation. Um, how is that going to be physically possible? In John's mind, it's not going to be. And I will say that in our world today, I remember uh, as a missionary going to a country of uh, 60 million people and thinking, how in the world are the 1,800 Christians in this Muslim country supposed to tell all 60 million people the gospel? Mm -hmm. There's no way that the gospel is going to get out there, and it's just overwhelming. And so John had to have have felt that overwhelming sense, and so seeing this heavenly choir filled with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, which is a direct fulfillment of the Great Commission, should should be hugely uh, encouraging to John and remind us that the Great Commission is not something where God's coming to us and saying, hey, I need you to do this so that it can happen. It We see the completion of the Great Commission, and so us participating in it, us sharing the gospel is less God needing us, and more, we get to help him do what he's going to do. Well, and culturally, right now, speaking uh, of what we see going on and issues in, in Louisville and things that have gone on all all around our country with with racism and issues like that, on on with issues on on with sin happening, and on, on whether you want to take sides, it's just sin is just is it, just running rampant, and, and and those issues are being played out in our world. And uh, but to see that. Whether race is an issue for for some people or whatever, we've talked about that in, in church and here. But to see that it's every nation, tribe, and tongue, and I know it's simplistic in a lot of ways, but you hear, you know, as a kid, red and yellow, black and white, they're a precious sight. Jesus loves the little children. Jesus loves all people. We we see that played out, and for me, it's just a reminder of you know what, like, you know, just to see that picture of heaven where it it doesn't matter what you're you can be black, white, yellow, purple, red, 
blue. I don't, and, and wherever the red and blue people are, I don't know. But like whatever color, ethnicity, race, whatever, the thing that matters, like you've talked about, that that those are my brothers and sisters in Christ, not a race, not a culture, not an ethnicity, not a a whatever, not even not even what church you go to. It, it's so much more about Jesus and so much less about all the minuscule things that we put importance on in our culture right now. Absolutely, and I think that. Th- you know, race is a, an issue in our, our culture. Um, it should not be an issue inside of the church. Um, but if you look at language, and I think that that's a good place to start looking at this, language is a result of sin. We see at the Tower of Babel that yeah. God confuses the languages. So here God takes the sin of man, the failure of man to live up to God's commands and ideals, that God, and the word that John uses here is he ransomed, he, mm. he redeems language that's a curse. And trust me, if you've ever tried to learn another language, language is a curse. Oh, my dear Lord. <laughs> uh, living, in a, uh, living in another culture as a missionary, one of the, the hardest things is you show up in this country and you, you left America and you, you were a subject matter expert. I mean, most people who go to the mission field at least have a master's degree. And so you're, you're a pretty smart guy. And you show up, and now you can't do anything. You can't wash your clothes because the little pictures don't make any sense, and all the words out beside stuff. You have to call somebody. Go, hey, how how does this thing work? I remember going to the grocery store and trying to buy flour. And in the country that I lived in, in Central Asia, they had like a whole aisle of flour. And the 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 word for flour there is just two letters, un. And there's this kind of un, and that kind of un, and this kind of. And I, I have no idea. (laughs) <laughs> what kind of flour I'm supposed to buy. I, I just want flour to, you know, bread some chicken. I, I don't know. Ah! And so language is something that's that's a result of man's sin, and yet God redeems it and uses it for his glory. Yeah, That is so cool that God doesn't just banish it. It's not that we get to heaven and we're all speaking Hebrew or something. It's that from every language, which is a result of the fall, we're singing God's praises. And it's, again, and as I've already said like three times during all this, and we're just, two, we're just two weeks into this, is to already see references and things being pulled and redeemed and restored from all throughout Scripture. Like, th- like these are the moments where it all comes together because we're coming to the end where God is glorified above all things to all people, and and that's just I just I always think that those kind of things are so cool to th- to see those things come full circle and, and work out the way that and, and again it's not I'm not trying to know what God knows but for me to say oh I, I see I see what he was I see what he was doing here like seeing uh, like and again this for me who's someone who's never good at math to finally figure out the math problem is like oh, okay that right I got it yes you know I, what I'm saying the little pieces fall into place yeah. And so this tells me, too, that we've got to be careful in the church that we don't borrow language from the culture and start trying to treat it like it's Scripture. And I'm going to give an example, and just before you get angry, hold with me. We say things like, uh, well, we need to be colorblind in the church. Okay, so I understand where the heart of that is and I understand what you're trying to say, but we do not need to be colorblind. We need to recognize that our African-American brother, our our uh, I have a friend that's from India, whatever that cultural racial issue is, they are made by God in his image, just like I am, yes. But there are things about every person that God did for a reason. God didn't just make us all 
look exactly the same. We are different and we are beautiful and we need to recognize that God is at work in our differences and that here we see people from every nation, tribe, language, and God redeems that and they're all praising God. Because no matter what the difference is, that's the one common denominator there. Yes. So we're we're not looking for colorblindness. We're looking for how can... As in my case, a, a white dude from Gadsden, Alabama, how can God use me to the maximum amount? If you're if you're African American, how can God use you to the most amount? If you're you're Indian, you're Nepali, you're you're Mongolian, you're you're British, what whatever you are, you didn't have you did not have one thing to do with your ethnicity. Nothing. You just showed up one day and bam, that's what you are. And so a, we don't look at anybody and because of their ethnicity say that they're a lesser person because of that because that is blasphemy because God's the one who chose the way that they look, the how much melanin they've got, all of those things. And B, that God made them that way for a reason and we need to look for how can we praise God through that, not pretend that it's not there. And so we need to be careful. We need, don't need to let the culture dictate this conversation. We need to let Scripture inform us, and here we see people from every tribe, tongue, and language singing praises to their king. This is literally the stage being set for what's going to come forward as the, the seals are popped open, and it ends here with this heavenly choir. Uh, and wow, do they sing a song. Worthy are you. This is a song. In fact, if you're looking at this in your Bible in chapter 5, it's indented because it's very poetic in the original language. It's put together. This is a song. Worthy is, are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. I think it's really funny here the way that John does this in the original language. And I'm going to try through most of this to stay away from Greek. (laughs) Um, But here, John takes the largest number that there is in the language because Greek didn't didn't have millions, trillions, Googles and all that stuff. And so he takes the largest, which is 10,000, and he literally pluralizes it which is not how you normally speak. He's speaking gobbledygook here. Ten thousands. The ten thousands is is upon ten thousands is. He's using multipliers to say so many people that I can't count them, nobody can count them, and we're going to see some pretty huge numbers where he counts. And so way more than that, way more than that. And I think that that's important for this reason. Anybody who's listening, if you've ever been to – a football, a college football game in the South. I remember when I, I I was living overseas, I had someone that was bragging about their national soccer stadium, and they said it seats thirty thousand people. And I was thinking, there's some high schools in in uh, Texas, Texas that, that seat, seat thirty thousand people. people. I didn't say that. What I said was, well, the the team that I pull for in the United States, our stadium seats about a hundred thousand. And his first response to that was, you're a liar. <laughs> I'm like, no, no, I'm serious. And I had to look. I literally had to Google Bryant Diddy Stadium and show him. And he's like, where do these people come from who go to that? So if you've ever been to an Alabama game, an Auburn game, uh, a uh, Ohio State game, any huge game, there is something in the human soul that's triggered from 
100,000 people in a stadium doing the same thing. And whether that be anxiety or awe or some mix of, of sick, some mix in the middle, it's it's something different. I, it is an experience like like nothing else to have a huge crowd like that. And again, you know, I know we, each university has its own traditions. At, at, at Alabama, one of the things is after every first down, the guy will say, first down, Alabama. And everybody roll goes, roll Todd. Yeah. There's just something about that. Or uh, I, at Bryant Denny, I mean, at um, – where where does the Cal College play? What's their stadium? <laughs> the Rose Bowl. No, the the uh, the people down south. Um, the Cal Co- Cal College. I thought you said Cal, like C A L. I was talking about USC. It's like Jordan Hare. Jordan Hare. So they they do uh, like a third down thing. No, that's Tennessee that does the third down thing where they play oh, okay. they play a particular song. And... Uh, Jordan Hare does the, at the kickoff. They do the War Eagle. Hey. That's right. Yeah. They get the pigeon that flies around <laughs> in the stadium. I got it. So those moments. Those moments when everybody's caught up in it, just think about how it, there's just something about it. There's something that catches the human emotion and draws it into that. Imagine that literally, as John says, by t- times 10,000 by 10,000, and we're all singing the same song. And some more thousands and more thousands. And we're all singing the same song, and we're singing it in our language, and we're raising praises to the king. That is just Unbelievable. We're saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is an unbelievably cool scene. Well, I think something that's always really, and I'm, and I've never done, I've never done a funeral. Like I've never been the one who preaches or, or talks at a funeral or anything like that. But I've, I've gone to a few, and it's always crazy to me. And I don't know if it's the ignorance of someone speaking or whatever. But like, you know, they'll say, "Well, you know, Mama's just, you know, she's probably up there with her puppies, just knitting up there, right there by her, whoever." And that's just what this is. she's up there knitting with her with her doggies hanging around her. Or you know he's he's up there golfing. He's on hole number nine up there. You know him and him and whoever just up there golfing. And it's like again, I don't know if it's the ignorance of of the person speaking or or maybe just some misconception. But for someone who's truly a Christian, like why in the world would to me like I don't want I don't want to reduce the glory of God to something that I just find like yo, you know Max is probably up there slapping the bass to what in heaven's band it's like no I'm not you know like that's not what I'm doing like no. that's not and as a believer as we talked about from the very get-go is that this whole message as parts of it is are, are scary and frightening but the whole message of revelation is joy not fear and anxiety and it's it's not it's not fear-mongering it, it it's joy and if and like for me, this is like the capstone of it. Like this is this is the cornerstone of where the joy comes from. It's an amazing scene. Yeah, because it's like, why in the world would I would I want to diminish the glory of God to something that I just makes me feel good that I think would be fun? Like I'm not gonna be up there playing golf, which I'm not down here playing golf, but I'm not up there knitting with like me and Winston are hanging out. Like I love Winston, he's cool. But By the it, way, that's that's his dog. Yeah, that's my dog. Like he's cool and all, but like, you know, it's not it's not how it's gonna be. Like I don't want to diminish the glory of God and how awesome this scene's gonna be to, you know, something that for all for all purposes, it's just trivial, and it, it's and 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 it's not it's not awe inspiring. It's not great. It's not what heaven's going to be like. No, in, instead of picturing your loved one sitting up in heaven knitting, imagine them in this massively huge crowd, arms uplifted, 
before the throne of God that's already been described with smoke and thunder and rainbows and and beautiful colors shooting out from it. And this entire crowd is screaming at the top of their lungs, not for a team, not for a goal, but for victory over human history. And to me, that's even more, that's more reassuring than mama's up there knitting. You know what I'm saying? Like that's, it's more reassuring and encouraging to me that whoever that person is that I love, that has been a part of my family or my friend or wh- whoever I'm there for that has passed away from this life and this earth, to know, like you, always, and like you always said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord as a believer, and that they're a part of this, like, that's, that's the most encouraging thing that I think anybody could, that could ever be said of, and I don't want to speak for everybody else, but that's the most encouraging thing that could ever be said at my funeral, is that we could preach the gospel message that if we know Jesus, this is the end. This is the scene that we have. Like if we, as a believer, if you know Jesus, this is the thing you get to partake in. That's encouraging. Like that's where I can find joy from throughout the whole book of Revelation is that I'm not going to be worried about playing, you know, playing the back nine in heaven with Peter and Paul. <laughs> like that's not it. I'll stand now. I'll stand in the trenches. I'll stand wherever and sing loud or sing third tenor or whatever we're singing up there. If there's parts, I don't know, but whatever we're singing, I'll stand by whoever yellow, black, white, purple, blue, whoever it is. I'm go, we're going to be there all in unison praising our king. And that's I think that's the coolest thing about this whole entire book is that this scene to me is like the cornerstone of all the joy that we that we'll continue to see outside of probably the end, but because I guess it's a really cool scene because as we get into the next few things, it's maybe not so cool for the people right. who are still left. Um, but this is this is so I, I I I could sit here and ramble forever because this is just such an awe-inspiring scene that John sees here. It, it to me again, it, think in your mind of you know a national championship game, a a some event where victory is declared. If you look at the pictures of VE Day, VJ Day, where the whole country went crazy because we won. Again, it, it, most of my listeners are probably in Alabama. You remember when Alabama or Auburn won a national championship, how everybody went bananas, and you know the, everybody's running to the, the, the uh, sporting goods store to yeah, buy the every, T-shirt at 1 o'clock in the morning. Yep. And so that kind of a – Jubilation, and but this isn't when the Lamb claims the title earth to, to the title deed to earth. This isn't a victory. This is the victory. Mm. It is the Lamb has won. Human history has come to fruition, and the Lamb has won. And we are all on the winning team, standing around the throne where it's proclaimed the Lamb has the right to take the scroll. And everybody's going, yes! And everybody's rising to their feet and singing this song together in their language, in in their voice. And your voice, if you're a believer, will be a part of this, crying out, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. And it doesn't get any better than that. It does not get any better than that. And so we are going to, the scene is set for what's about to happen. And uh, I, I think that we've painted the picture of where John is and what's going on. And so I look forward to uh, talking to you guys next week. So go serve your king. Thank you guys again for joining us on this week's episode of Not Another Revelation Podcast. You can join us live in person each Sunday at North Pinko Baptist Church at 10 a.m., or you can go to our website, northfleetco.org, to watch our live stream or check out our other podcasts, ministry information, past sermons, and past worship service. Thank you guys for tuning in.